Krakow in 1923. Thanks, Yeah. And he came, this is my Rebbe, Rabbi Tversky Zatzal, Rabbi Shlomo Tversky. He came to America at the age of two in 1925 with his parents. Now, he grew up in Milwaukee, and I'm going to talk about that next. Now, his parents were Rabbi Yaakov Yisrael Tversky and Rebbe Sin Devara Leah Tversky. His, his father was known here in America as the Milwaukee Rebbe, and in Europe he was known as the Hornestipler Rebbe. Rabbi Yaakov Yisroel Tversky. Hornestipel was the name of their town in Ukraine. H-O-R-N-E-S-T-E-I-P-O-L. Hornestipel. The Stipler Gaons, that's all, who we are all familiar with, was from that town. So Stipler was from Hornestipel. They shortened it in his, in his title. And he was born from a bracha of Rabbi Tversky's great-grandfather. So Rabbi Yaakov Yisrael Nisan, the Milwaukee Rebbe, and his Rebison, Rebison de Varalea, she was the daughter of the Babavar Rebbe in Poland, in, in, in uh, Eastern Europe. Not, was that Poland, or I think it was. I'm not Poland or Ukraine, I'm not sure. Babav. And her brother was the Babavar Rebbe here in the States, a Holocaust survivor, Rabbi Shlomo Haberstein. They came over in the early 1920s, I mentioned 1925, from Europe. And in the town of Milwaukee, they established a kahila there, which is still there to this day, flourishing. His son, Rabbi Michal Tversky, leads that kahila. And in the Milwaukee of the 1920s and 30s and 40s, he raised, along with his wife, Five Hasidish Tamide Chachamim Gedoli. And let's just say Milwaukee was not Borough Park. <laughs> and it's really unbelievable what they accomplished, uh, not only in terms of their community in Kuala Yisrael, but their sons, their five sons, of such tremendous impact on our, on our lives. Okay, so that was the generation back. His father, Rabbi Yaakov Yisrael, the Milwaukee Rebbe, his father was Riblebele, Torsky. He was also the Hornestipler Rebbe in Ukraine. He also left Europe, first went to Antwerp and then Chicago, and he is buried in Chicago. That's his Makom Menucha. That's Riblebele Torsky, the Hornestipler Rebbe, my Rebbe's grandfather. His father was Rav Mordechai Dov, Tversky, Hornestipel Rebbe in Hornestipel. And he stayed there and he passed away there in 1903. He was an enormous Talmud Chacham in Agadol Torah. He wrote many sforim and was a post-sake as well, looked to for Pesach Halacha in that whole area of Europe. Had several sforim both in Lundisha and Halacha and also in Chasidus. His sefer on Chasidus is called the Pele Yoetz. There's another Sefer Pelayo, it's written by an earlier person, a great Sephardi Godel. The, both the names are the same, but two different form. So that's for Mordechai Dov. And again, he was in Hornestipel. He was a son-in-law of the Divrei Chaim, of Chaim Sanzer, one of the great rabbis in Europe. So that was the Mordechai Dov's father-in-law. Rav Chaim of Sanz. 
the Tzanzarav or the Divrei Chaim. That was Rav Mordechai Dov's shver, his father-in-law. Okay, now at that point, so we got four generations, Rabbi Shlomo Twersky, his father, his father, and his father. That's where we are right now, Rav Mordechai Dov, the Peleoites. Now, there you have a mother, right? His mother was named Sterna. Wait, which one's mother? The Peleoites, Rav Mordechai Dov. Rav Mordechai Dov's mother was Sterna, which means star, kochat. She married someone named Rav Meshulam Zusha. That was his father, Rav Mordechai Dov's father. He was a descendant, this Rav Meshulam Zusha, of the Rebbe Rav Zusha of Anapol. So that's how the Tversky's go back to the Rebbe Rav Zusha from that line. Now, I'm not going to go that way, though. I just wanted to tell you that, that connection there. So again, his mother, Mordechai Dov's mother, was Sterna. She was the daughter of Rav Yaakov Yisroel, same name, of Chikas. T-C-H-K-A-S in English. In Ukraine, I don't know how they spelled it. <laughs> That's how we would spell it, Chikas. These towns are all still there, but they're all... I met, I met someone from Chikas, a Mishola, who comes around here each year trying to rebuild the community there. So in Ukraine, they're, they're still around. Okay, so that's Rav Yaakov Yisrael of Chikas, and this is Rav Mordechai Dov's grandfather. Sterna was the mother, and then the, her father was Rav Yaakov Yisrael of Chikas. Rav Yaakov Yisrael of Chikas was one of eight sons to his father, Rav Mordechai Tversky, known as the Chernobyl or Magad. One more time, right? So Rav Yaakov Yisrael of Chikas was the third of eight sons to his father, Rav Mordechai Tversky, also known as the Magid of Chernobyl. Chernobyl or Magad. Now we're back, in, we're, we're back to late 1700s at this point and into the 1800s. The Chernobyl Magad was a very holy man, and he was known to be Mefarnes, the Lamed Vav, hidden Sadikin. He used to raise money and go to people's houses, and he supported the Lamed Vav Sadikin. <coughs> but all of them, or some of them, I don't know, and I wouldn't be surprised if he was one of them. But that's one thing that's well known about him. So as I mentioned, he had eight sons from two wives. His first wife passed away, then a second wife. So one of the eight sons of the third was Rabbi Yaakov Yisrael of Chikas. Rav Mordechai, the Chernobyl Magad, the father of Rabbi Yaakov Yisrael of Chikas. So that's Rav Mordechai, the Magad of Chernobyl. And his father is the beginning of this whole lineage, the Maore Nayim, and that's Rav Menachem Nochum Tursky of Chernobyl. Rav Menachem Nochum. Rav Menachem Nochum Tursky. He was the first Chernobyl Rebbe. He was a student of the Baal Shem Tov, and after the Baal Shem Tov was Nifter, he was a student of the Magid of Mezerich. 
the Talmud of both. And his Sefer, the Ma'ore 9, which was written late 1700s, because he died in 1797, is one of the earlier Sifrei Hasidus that we have from that generation of the Talmudim of the Baal Shem and the Magid. It's learned across the board amongst all lineages, like any Sefer is from that era. Ma'ore 9. I'll tell you one story. About, what's that near? Yes, yes, what we said over Divrei Torah the Murray Naim, absolutely. So I'll tell you one story about him. So he lived, of course, in Chernobyl. He was the first rabbi of Chernobyl. And they would make sure that on Friday afternoon, someone would leave a, a lantern, a, a lamp burning, a candle in, in his room. So he'd have some light there Friday night. So one Friday night, after davening, after the suda, I suppose, he went back into his room, and the room had a candle burning. As, as soon as he went into the room, he started like walking around like it was pitch black. And it was light, like it was dark. And he could, it was clear that he couldn't see, that for him it was dark. He was like feeling his way around the room. But there was a candle lit in the room. So everybody was very mispoiled, like wondering what's going on here. <clears throat> and they couldn't figure out what's doing. So they, they asked a few questions around the household. And one of the non-Jewish helpers of that house it was his task to light the candle in the room before Shabbos so the Rebbe would have a candle there. This particular week he forgot and he lit it on Shabbos. So when the morning night went in the room he couldn't see. So morning night is a fitting title for his name, the light of one's eyes, right? the light of the eyes. What's that? <laughs> That's what we're trying. We're trying to do that. <laughs> yeah, we could learn. We probably will learn in Morai Nine. What's that? Do I? Absolutely. I believe the story. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't believe all stories. Mrs. Diskin's asking a good question. I don't believe all stories. That story, I believe. So, because, you know, you, when you have a shaykhist to a particular people and their line and what they represent, that's not hard for me to, that's not a stretch for me to believe that. So, knowing my Rebbe, and this is his seventh, eighth generation great-grandfather, you know, I, no, I can, I don't have a hard time with that. Yeah, he couldn't, he walked in and for him the room was dark because the candle was lit on Shabbos. Yeah, so, so okay, so halachically, right? You're not allowed to benefit from a malacha that a goy does for you on Shabbat. Right. And that's not allowed. A goy. Right, but he lit it for a Jew. And there was only light in the room. So it's usher in halacha. It's usher in halacha to benefit from a malacha that a goy does for a Jew. But he didn't know that. So, but he, he lived in that reality. Please, Shifra, yeah. Um, but if the person has a problem, mm -hmm. which they're sick, 
and the guy who does something for them on Shabbos. Yeah, that's that's a whole different halacha. Sickness, um, emergencies, a guy doing a malacha for a Jew, that's what we tell people to do. But the person, you're talking about somebody who was sick. No, he wasn't sick. No, he was, he was healthy. He was healthy. He, they did not light uh, the fire for him because, or the candle because he was sick. It's just so he would have light. So why did he have some a non-Jewish? Why what? Why did he have a non-Jewish? Why did he? Yeah. That was very common to have non-Jewish <coughs> helpers around the house, cleaning lady, you know, anybody who was helping, pitching in. There was a lot of reliance. We have it too. We have it too. <laughs> yeah, please. Sorry. This will give you some many information. There was such an or and are such an exceptional family. Is there any story about anything why or you know, is there anything There's a couple of things. There's a couple of things, and I maybe can get get a little flavor for it. So somebody once asked my Rebbe's father, the Milwaukee Rebbe how he and his wife raised five Hasidish Talmidin Chachamim in Milwaukee in the 1930s. So he said, I never left Hornestiple. That's one, something to think about. You know. And that has to be understood well because, as they are now, they're very with it people. They're not removed, they're not living in some enclave somewhere. They're very with the people, which was one of the things that was very striking to me about Rabbi Shlomo Tversky. He was very with the people, and at the same time, you knew you were in the presence of a person who was really had his roots tied at a very high level. You could always sense that. So I think that's a little bit of an insight. And they took that with them, like wherever they went, they took that with them. Yeah, please, Regina. Bob her rabbit, yeah. So my mother used to say what a miracle it was that the, the, the first they went to to, to to the U.S. by themselves and everybody was how could they do that? And they said here they raised such children. Yes. And um, I remember this story that they were just everybody said look at that they want It is. It really is. But it's a, it's amazing what what they did, what they accomplished. This was in the 1920s when they came. They came in the 1925. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing. No, no yeshivas. One. There's one yeshiva, New York, and no day schools. You know, it was a completely different landscape than than we live in. Yeah, Mir, please. Were they sort of like politically aware? I mean, were they like uh, English speaking? And you know how we had like the election and that's how you all could vote and uh, were you aware of what's uh, going on? And, 
So there's, there's, I, would, I would answer it like this. Those five sons, right? Rabbi Shlomo Trusky, my Rebbe, was the oldest of the five. His brother also passed away, Rav Matal, not to be confused with his son, Rav Matal. The third brother is Rabbi Dr. Abraham Tversky, the famous psychiatrist, who's written so many beautiful books. The younger two brothers are twins. That's Rav Michal and Rav Aaron. Rav Aaron is a law professor. Rav Michal is a Rav in Milwaukee. They are all articulate, had a command of the English language, which was superb, and fluent Yiddish speakers. The parents were European, right? So they spoke English. You know. <laughs> they were European. The sons were a master, really, of orat oratory, and just their skills were phenomenal. My Rebbe did not talk a lot about politics. Very little. Yeah. Very little. Uh, his youngest brother, Rivaron Torsky, is very involved in the political world and does a lot of that for their good as he's role in New York. He's one of their main legal people. So I think that really would depend, would depend on which one. Yeah. Please, this is Fran, yeah. There was a Chernobyl Rebbe who used to come to Baltimore in the 50s. Mm. Um, how is was he from Philadelphia? Do you know? I, he was in Williamsburg when I knew about him. Okay. So I don't know. I don't know which Rebbe that was. I just recently found out that there was a Tversky Chernobyl um, Rebbe in Philadelphia, someone who was here took a picture of, of his Matzev and showed it to me. I didn't, never knew that. But it doesn't sound like that's him. Now in New York you have the Rachmistrivka Rebbe, who that's also Chernobyl. But Chernobyl in the 1950s in New York, I, I simply don't know where, about that person. There's a Chernobyl Rebbe now in B'nai Brak. Now, the reason you have so many branches of Chernobyl is because going back on our little piece of history there, the Chernobyl Magad had eight sons. They all became Rebbes, every single one. They all had a court and following, and we're talking about tens of thousands of Hasidim in Ukraine in the early 1800s. It was an enormous Hasidus in Europe. So Chernobyl, Chikas, Makarov, Rachmistrivka, Skver, the Skver Rebbe, the Zatorsky, Trisk, um, Koroshev, these are all lines of Chernobyl, Hornestaipel, and it was very, very vast. Much of it wiped out in World War I and then decimated in World War II. So only those who got out and during those times, you know, survived. And now you do have Rachmistrivka in Yerushalayim, which is getting to be a pretty large Chasidus, and also in Borough Park. You have Chernobyl as well in, in B'nai Brak, and Hornestaiplo through Remichel and his, his Mishpacha, Rabbi, Rabbi Mati Tversky, my Rabbi's son, in um, Flatbush, and his brother-in-law, Rav Shalom Friedman, in Yerushalayim. So that's... So many, um, that's just a few of the many branches uh, of Chernobyl. They're all Chernobyl, they're all Tverskis, they're all related, whether they're first cousins or tenth cousins, they're all from the same lineage from that very first one, the Maori Naim, the Nachum Nachum. So that's about seven or eight generations of this Hasidus. That is the particular line that I personally associate with, which is Hornestaipel or, or Chernobyl. And thanks for tuning in. It's nice, uh, nice to be able to share that. Always good to hear that history, where people come from. Please.
Rav Michal's in Milwaukee, and his wife, Rebbe Tzinfegi Torski, also very well known. So they, they've been there for a long time. And who was the second son? The second of those five was named Rav Matal. He was an accountant in New York and did a lot of behind-the-scenes chesed, from what I've told. They said it, they said it just looked like an accounting office, <laughs> but there was a lot of chesed and maestum tovim that was coming forth from that place. He was the most low-key of all the brothers. The second one, Ruth was a very low-key person, and more, I'd say more of a hidden type of uh, community. Askin, he was an Askin, but in a very uh, under-the-radar kind of way. Please, Linda. Could you remind me what the Moorah Nine was about? I remember learning that book many, many, many years ago. I don't think it came out in English. No. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I couldn't say what it's about. There's hundreds of topics that it's are discussed. All, it's Chasidus. It's Chasidus. It's Mamash from the first, second generation of Chasidus. Chas- of it's about so many things. Right, so maybe we'll get a mimer from there Okay, so this is the Malchus Shlomo. Rabbi Twersky Zatzal did not write this sefer, but it was compiled, as I said, by his grandson. Isa b'Gemora Brachos. It says in the Gemora, Kishachola Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. When Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai became ill, and that's to say he was dying, Nichnesu Tamid of the His Tamidim came to visit him. Kevan Shara'a Osan, when he saw them, Hischalivkos, he began to cry. Amrulo, they said to him, Why are you crying? Amar Lohem, so he said back to his students, Ilu Lifnei Melech Basar Vadam Hayu Malichinosi, etc. If they were bringing me before a king of flesh and blood who was here today and in the grave tomorrow, I would still be afraid. I'll just fill in the blank. All the more so that I'm about to stand before the Melech Machei Hamlachim HaKadosh Baruchim. About to stand before the King of Kings. That was the first answer he said to them. Velo od. And he continued. This is still a quote from the Gemara. Ella, sheyesh lefanai beiz derachem. There are two paths in front of me. Echad shal Gan Eden ve'echad shal Gehenim. One goes to Gan Eden, one goes to Gehenim. And I don't know on which path they are going to lead me. And I shouldn't cry. That's end quote from the Gemara and Brachos. So the question, which of course uh, we're all thinking about, this is very hard to understand. How did Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai not know? which direction he was going. He certainly knew about himself that his life was a holy life, completely involved. He was the Nasi of the Sanhedrin. Why was he in doubt? So, it's just striking. Here is the Tzadi Hador, the Godel Hador, on his deathbed. He says to the Talmudim, I don't know if I'm going to Gan Eden or to Gehenna. So how would that make everybody else feel? Right? Like, <laughs> what about us? Right? So that's the Gemara, and that's the question, of course, what, what's happening here? So this is Rabbi Tversky's approach to this very difficult Gemara. 
אבל העניין הוא, כי התורה הוא הכלי שעל ידו יכול למצוא השם יסברך. The Torah is the clay. It's the vessel through which a person can find God. And he was very strong on talking about Hashem being real in people's lives, not just a concept. So when he's saying here to find Hashem, he really means a relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. The only way to get it is through Torah. Avol, however, imhu eno mavakesh, if a person is not a seeker, they won't find anything. Even though they're keeping the Torah, if they're not looking for God in, actively in their life, they won't find Him. It's like any other kli, like any other vessel or instrument. You may have the kli in your hand. But if you don't use it, it won't help you at all. Right, so if you're holding a hammer in your hand, that doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean you know how to build. You're just holding a hammer. So with the Torah, it says, it is the kli through which we find Hashem. But the person must be a mavakesh to be looking for Hashem. And then the Torah will help him or her find Hashem. Right, so that's the first part. That's step one. Second part. Now looking at it from a different angle. Avol, but Buliha Torah. If a person doesn't have Torah, Bavadai lo yimso Hashem yisparach, they certainly will not find Hashem. Meaning if they're seeking, but they're not seeking with the Torah, they also won't find God. Ki ha-Torah hu ha-kli Hashem yisparach ba'atzmo. The Torah is the kli that we must have in order to reach Hashem. And if you don't use the kli, even though you're seeking God all your life, you won't find anything. So you have to have two things. You have to have the kli, which is the Torah, and you have to be a mavakesh, a seeker of a re- relationship with Hashem. The Torah without seeking, we won't find Hashem really. We'll be doing mitzvahs. We're not going to find Hashem in our real lives. Or seeking Hashem without the Torah, we're not going to find Him either. I'd just like to qualify that for a little bit. There are people who believe in God who don't have the Torah. And they seem to have a relationship with Him, both Jews and non-Jews. So he's talking about a different kind of relationship because a relationship with Hashem without Torah is very limited. You can't truly serve Hashem unless you have Taryag Mitzvahs. So if someone says, well, you know, I love God and God is part of my life, I believe that, it's true. But there's no Shachris, there's no Mincha, there's no Shabbos, there's no Kashris, there's no Tarzan Bishbacha. It's a very limited relationship with Hashem. So that's different because they have Shava Mitzvahs B'nai Noah. They're not expected to, you know, find Hashem through Torah and Mitzvah. And their relationship with Hashem is totally on that, that they're moral, ethical, decent people, and that's what's expected of them. Absolutely. So for a, a person who's truly seeking Hashem, you have to have Torah. I want to give you an example. Are you familiar with the book Tuesdays with Mori? Right, pretty, 
well-known book in our society, written several years ago, a very popular book. So, of course, it's populated with Jews, you know, the book, the guy who wrote it, the professor who he who, who gets to know. And it's about a, a man who gets to know a professor by interviewing him. It's a Jewish professor in a university. He's a very smart person, very insightful person. And, he's, and he, he gets the disease and he's gradually dying. And the book describes the relationship of the person who came to interview him turning into a, a very deep and important friendship. And all the lessons that he learned from him, a lot of nice things. Now, the, the professor obviously is Jewish in the book, you can tell. And again, smart, insightful, wise person. <clears throat> At the end of the book, he dies and he has himself cremated. Cremated. He's cremated. And his ashes are scattered near some tree somewhere. So I read it, I feel like, oh, chaval, you know, like, that's so sad. But that's this. You can be wise. You can be insightful. You can teach lessons. If you don't have Torah, you're going to make serious mistakes in life, like that one. He did what he thought was right. You know, he did what he thought was the best thing. And having himself cremated, contrary to the most fundamental Jewish teachings, how we handle a body that's nifter. And I was, I was mama sad when I read it, because it just doesn't matter how smart you are. If you don't have the Torah, you're going to end up doing something like that. So, that, so that's this. Pardon me? He was ignorant of Torah. He was ignorant of Torah. Right. He was a university professor but ignorant of Torah. So Rabbi Trusky is saying, you have to have both. You have to be a seeker, and you have to seek through the Torah. That's what brings a person into a real relationship with God. V'hine, haderech el Hashem mishtaneh lefi ha'adam lefi ha'es. The pathway to a relationship with Hashem is different according to the person. Each person has their own kesher to God and according to the times, according to the generation that you're born into. So our grandparents' generation had their Torah relationship with God, our parents have theirs, and we have our Torah relationship with God. It's all within the framework of Torah, but we all know each door is different. Each door finds Hashem in their own way. Valkein, therefore, im mishtamesh b'dorah kura'ui. I'm sorry? Uh, we're about 10 lines from the end. If a person uses the Torah properly, their avodas Hashem will never be the same to somebody else's because each person has to find their own expression of Torah and mitzvahs. And we can't copy somebody else. We have to become who we are. Ki because everybody has their own unique contribu contribution to Torah and mitzvahs. Each person has their own. A lot of people who are living Torah, but they're not using the Torah, it's only their lifestyle. It's a lifestyle of Torah, where you send your kids to school, where you go to shul, the things that you do. So are those things nice? Yes, uh, absolutely. It's part of Torah. But he's saying that if it's only that, if it's just a lifestyle, 
then once again, that's not truly seeking Hashem, and they're not going to reach a relationship with Hashem. We have to take those things that are part of our lifestyle and say, where do I find Hashem here? How do I build my relationship with Hashem on Shabbos, on Yom Tov, on Tuesday? How do I do that? Nimsa she'im echad hu if a person is truly seeking, even though he keeps Torah fully, he will always have questions. Am I living Torah the way Hashem wants me to live it? Yeah, I'm davening, I'm keeping kosher, but am I living Torah the way Hashem wants me to? el An expression to reach the house of Hashem, meaning a relationship with God. Is this the ladder whose top reaches the heaven? Are we on that ladder? Are we climbing? Therefore, even the great Tana, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who certainly was not doing even the smallest Averas, because he was a Tzadik Gomer, who was completely immersed in Avodah Hashem for all of his days, he cried at the end of his life, because he didn't know, was he using it, applying the Torah properly to his life? Was he keeping it? Of course. Was he learning? Yom and Belayla. Yes. But was he living it according to the way Hashem wanted him to and applying it to his own personal life? To reach an intimate knowledge of God according to his true abilities. And therefore he cried. He doesn't know which way he's going. Gan Eden or Gehenna. So we can all look at that. And say, Hashem gave us our skills, our talents, our milas, our chesronos. He gave us this beautiful life of Yiddishkeit. Now it's up to us to find Hashem within this life that we, that we lead. And if we're not asking ourselves the question, where do I find God? Then we have stopped seeking. Then we're more into a lifestyle which we would call mechanical, rote, Torah and mitzvahs, which we all slip into. But it's just important to learn a mimer like this, to wake ourselves up, to remember what we're doing and what we, what we are living for. Okay, any questions or comments? Dory, please. Okay, so Torah really means the whole picture of Torah. And it's not just sitting over a sefer. He means the life of Torah. A mitzvah, a midah tova, emuna, hashgacha, all that is Torah. So whatever mitzvahs women are not in, that's not really, in this respect, it's not limiting, because that's not related to their own potential. If we're not chive in something, then I'm not, it's not related to my potential. But the things that we have available in our door, yes, Yerida Sadoros, and the Torah that we have available to us, 
and every way that we can connect to it, that's all part of what he's talking about. Learning Torah from a Sefer is one dimension of Torah. Living Torah really is what he's talking about, the life of Torah. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yes, Sandy, please. Yes, we really don't know. And we have to have both sides. I think it's important to feel good about what we're doing and our accomplishments, to recognize our accomplishments, to feel a sense of pride in that. I think that's extremely important. And at the same time, if that's the only side of the scale for us, then we end up smug and self-righteous and all the things that are not pleasant. And we have to have both. You know, a sense of really feeling joyous to have Yiddishkeit and Torah and a sense of, I'm not really sure what a Kaddish Baruch Hu wants from me, but I'm going to give it my best. We have to, we have to be humbled by a mimer like this and by our approach to Torah. Or, or we really go off the other side of the scale and we don't grow. It's always a balance when it comes to Yiddishkeit. Yeah, please, Mir. Right. Without, so the, the expression in Yiddish, which everybody uh, loves, that Avu cup, like where is your where's your head? Where's your right. head? Where's your yeah. right? So Baal Shem Tov said, "What person is where their mind is." Oh, so so that's that's that expression, right. It, right? Yes, yeah. and that's that is a big part of it is making sure we're engaged. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That our mind is engaged with what we're doing, so mm-hmm. we're not doing things as much as possible out of routine. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Rabbi Frisky would often rail against this. He was a very fiery person. Mm-hmm. And I have to tell you this. When, when you heard him talk like this, you were shaken up. You didn't walk, awa- walk away and say, wow, that was such a nice speech. <laughs> it's not how you walked away from hearing him. You walked away shook up. And that's how we wanted it. He, he wanted people to be shaken. And he was his, himself like that. He was, he was constantly reevaluating himself. He was an Adam Gadol, Ma'od, and in, in a state of constant reevaluation. I remember once at a Shabbos table he spoke, and he said something about Shabbos. And somebody raised their hand and said, Rabbi Tversky, last week you said something different about Shabbos. He said that was last week. <laughs> so he, he lived by this. And you, you walked away feeling like, I, I need to look into my life a little bit. You didn't walk away feeling smug. Yeah. Who had a, a hand up I saw a minute ago? Sorry. Yes, please, Linda, yeah. <laughs>
Blood flies in your mouth. And I'm constantly stopping my ride to watch out my safety motorcycle. And I pray to Hashem all the time, please, you know, I'm so careful with this mitzvah. Please don't let me swallow a bug because I do everything I can to stop us. And they're still coming in. So, over and over, so those type of situations, how can we get Hashem to have our back? Like, is that just a level of deserving, a level of connection? Is that like, how did he, how did he, how is he Zoka to have Hashem make sure he didn't sin? Right. Like, just by dominating to Hashem that will never sin, like in his work. You know, a person who has very um, high levels of Yura Shamayim, you know, is great, is Zoka to a certain Shemira. Mm-hmm. So somebody like that is Zoka to a certain Shemira. We all have it. But like you said, we can tell that there are situations we'd like to have more shmira. So, David, David Hashem to protect you. Yeah. 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 It's just increasing. It's a just increasing our our avod, increasing our our Yiddishkeit. You know, like, similar to what Rabbi Tversky is saying, is constantly really trying our best to move forward. So we're Zoha to that relationship. Yeah. Um, Shuman, did you have your hand up a minute ago? Um, huh? it, it, yeah. it just, this conversation reminded me of a guest that we yeah. used to have often on Shabbos. I used to hear her always whispering at the beginning of each course of Lord Shabbos Kodesh. Mm-hmm. I think there, you know, there was a difference between like leading a Jew, Jewish lifestyle and a Jewish life. Like she incorporated everything. She was trying, really, really trying to make it real. Yeah. Now, I want to tell you a little story, and it's not at all to take away from the beautiful story that Mr. Schumann just said, but it will give a little insight into Rabbi Tversky and also onto this demanding kind of avoda. So there was somebody at his Shabbos table who was saying before he ate on Shabbos, look how the Shabbos Kodesh. <clears throat> he was saying it a little too loud. <laughs> it was more like, come take a look, look what I'm doing, right? So Rabbi Tversky said, I think you mean lekavod your belly. <laughs> I think you mean lekavod your belly. Now, so this, you know, is an opportunity to bring this out that Lekavit Shabbos Kodesh, and there is an Indian to say that before you eat food on Shabbos, to say Lekavit Shabbos Kodesh. It's brought down. It's an Indian to do that, like this person was doing it. Like all things, if we're not careful, it will turn into something that we shouldn't be doing, into gaiva, advertising our own relationship with Hashem. So even the holy things that we do, we have to scrutinize and make sure that they're being done in a modest way. We're not attracting attention. 
and we're not trying to attract attention by the avoda that we do. Hatsnei alechas. There's always that balance. Uh, the Swarim HaKadoshim say that in addition to doing tshuva for our averos, we have to do tshuva for our mitzvahs. Because how do we do the mitzvah? Right. We could have done it a little better. Yeah. Maybe we were trying to show people the mitzvah that I'm doing. So there's always makom to take it, as Rasa Hashem, to a more pure level without beating ourselves up. That's another side of the balance. Right? Some people feel whatever they do, they're not doing anything right. You talk to someone like that, I never do anything right. And you know the person, they do so many good things. But they just can't get off of that. Oh, I, can't, I can't, just can't do anything right in my life. So always with that shikul of demanding further growth, but not beating oneself up, being humble and being oved, like that's our Yiddishkeit, that's our rich, multi-leveled avodas Hashem that we're striving for. Yes, yeah, Sora, please. That, that's it. That's mama shit. So I think it's good that you say to yourself, I'm happy I'm paying attention today. But that's where it should stop. Because like the next step, you know, for all of us to be like, I paid attention today. <laughs> Which is different than I'm happy I paid attention. So it's, it's one, a step or two away from being smug. You know, and that, that already, now, now we're venturing off into Amida Ra. So just that awareness. And to be happy that I concentrated today, Baruch Hashem, in my davening, that's a good thing. And one area of Shemira there is always to say, thank you Hashem for helping me concentrate better today. Please help me concentrate next time I daven. So we're giving it over to our Kodesh Baruch Hu and not strictly taking credit on our, by, by ourselves. Have a great day, everybody. Ashukoa, wonderful day. Have a great week. I, yes. Yes, so two things. Number one is that this year was Le'ilui Nishmas Esther Bat Mazal, dedicated by Tanya Schiffman. And secondly, we will be having Shear next week on Thursday, Thanksgiving Day, but I will be giving Shear. The Thursday after that, I'll be out of town. But this coming Thursday, Bezras Hashem, a week from today, yes, there will be Shear. Have a great day. I get in charge, everybody. Salzayin Gazan.